we have been working our way as a church through some of the parables of Jesus. And a parable, that might be kind of a new word to you, I don't know, but a parable is kind of in that storytelling genre. Uh, you might have heard of an of a allegory before or a fairy tale, and a parable is separate and unique from those other categories in some important ways. We've talked about this on previous Sundays. But a fairy tale has like fantastical elements. It's got talking animals, magic, sorcerers, dragons, things like that. Uh, A parable is drawn from real life. Uh, So it uses like agricultural analogies a lot of the time. So it doesn't have some of those more fantastical, magical elements you find in fairy tales. And an allegory, like a really famous allegory might be like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or the Chronicles of Narnia series, which C.S. Lewis wrote as a very deliberate illustration for some truths that we find in the Bible and the great story that we're living in, the story of Jesus and his church and how he saves fallen human beings. And all of that is written in an allegory where C.S. Lewis takes those truths and he puts them in an imaginary world. And you can really enjoy diving into the Chronicles of Narnia because you can see that this person represents this and that. You can draw a million lessons out of the Chronicles of Narnia. But a parable is different than that in that it's really meant to just communicate one or maybe two big ideas. And not every detail is laden in meaning. So that's what we're talking about. When Jesus taught in parables, he was telling a story that was very simple, drawn from real life, and it's really meant to convey just one or maybe two, just a few really big ideas, and we can kind of get off in the weeds and trying to assign meaning to every little detail. So the challenge for us when we take up a parable of Jesus is what's the big idea here? What's the main thing Jesus is trying to communicate? Now, it's interesting to me that a lot of the parables that we've been studying have been spoken by Jesus in response to a question from somebody else. And this morning is going to be in that same category. You can pick it up in Matthew 18. We're going to be reading verses 21 through 35. And again, a lot of these parables are well known to you if you've been around the church for a a while. Uh, But let's dive in here. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. It says, beginning in verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. We'll get to the parable in a second, but this is setting things up for the parable to come. And I want you to see here that Peter thinks he's being a real big-hearted hero. He thinks he's being super magnanimous in this moment. According to the religious tradition that Peter would have been raised in, as well as first-century observant Jewish people living in the middle of that religious tradition at that time, it was commonly understood in, in that time that... A person was obligated to forgive repeated sins three times. But if someone sinned against you in the same way a fourth time, you had no obligation to then forgive them. And this was based on a misinterpretation of some verses in the book of Amos. We won't get bogged down in that rabbit trail this morning. You can look it up sometime. If you want to know afterwards, you can kind of see where they get that idea from. 
but it's not a true interpretation of what those verses say. Nevertheless, it was a commonly held understanding in that religious tradition at that time. Peter, growing up in the middle of that, would have had this idea, as an observant Jew, I'm obligated to forgive three times, but not a fourth. But Peter, who has grasped, I think, something of Jesus' compassionate heart for sinners, goes beyond what he, as an observant, true-hearted worshiper of his time, had probably been taught was required, and he generously suggests that maybe a person should be forgiven up to seven times. But Jesus wants to radically reorient Peter's thinking away from the narrow legalistic mindset that he'd been trained and brought up in, with its emphasis on what a person was obligated to do, to something much bigger, more expansive, and of, co- and of course, much closer to God's heart. Peter had suggested seven times, but Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven Now, he's not replacing Peter's number with a bigger number. I really believe he is rejecting the idea of numbering sins entirely. This is a rejection of the calculating, quantitative approach to forgiveness that Peter had been taught his whole life. Really, he wants to train Peter away from the idea of what must I do to what is closest to God's heart, what what. What reflects the heart of God towards other people? Peter's question betrays the fact that he was seeking to find a limit to his duty. Uh, Even if that limit was in his mind generous, it still was an exploring of how much must I do? And by asking this question, how many times must I forgive, Peter reveals something about his heart, that he wished to do no more good than was required. I've never had a kid say to me, how much ice cream do I have to eat? That doesn't exist. I have had them say, how much of this casserole, how much Brussels sprouts, how much of whatever? How much must I eat? How much must I forgive? What does this betray about Peter's heart? Jesus is not, again, pointing Peter toward a more accurate cap on forgiveness requirements. Some of you have your calculators out. It's 490. That's what you're looking for. Unbelievably, Jesus is saying, love keeps no record of wrongs. This is the language from the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. Stop keeping count. Or as New Testament believers who are sincere from the heart imitator of Jesus' example, we're told in the Bible to forgive as we were forgiven in Christ. Aren't you glad that God didn't cut you off after 490 sins? (laughs) Well, you're dead to me now. You blew it. No, if I am to forgive others in the way Jesus forgave me, that's what Jesus is getting at in the middle of this exchange. And this brings us to the parable. This is the story he tells Peter, and let those who have ears, let them hear. This is what he says. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. And please note, he says the exact same thing this servant had said to the king. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This story begins with a king who has appointed a day to settle accounts with his servants. Now we've been told that such a day is coming, haven't we, fellow servants? We have. Luke 12, 2 through 3 says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. There is a coming day where an all-knowing righteous God is going to come back. This time as a lion. Now on this day that the king has set to settle accounts with his servants, a servant is brought before this king who was found to owe him the astounding sum of 10,000 talents. The Russians have rubles, we have dollars. What exactly is a talent? A talent was the largest denomination of currency in the ancient world. A single talent, just one was roughly equal to 20 years' wages for a common laborer. The amount owed by this servant was 200,000 years' worth of wages. It's an astounding amount of money. Is gazillion a word, really and truly? I don't know. Sometimes I get emails on Monday that I used a wrong word. Gazillion. I think it's real. Okay. This guy owns a gazillion dollars. The king pronounces his judgment. This man can't repay that amount. We can't get blood from a stone. Let's recoup at least a little of our loss and sell him and his family and all of his possessions into slavery. The servant, at this news, as any of you would, falls down before the king, blubbering and pitiable, begging for mercy. Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And amazingly, this king 
decides to take 200,000 years of wages on the chin. He personally absorbs the loss, forgives this man this insurmountable debt. And of course, that hopelessly unattainable sum represents our own sin debt before the Lord. In fact, that's exactly how the Bible describes our sins. It's as a debt. In Colossians 2, 13 through 14, we read, "...in you who were dead in your sins, God made alive through Jesus, having forgiven all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands." This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I think it's amazing how our sin-clouded hearts cannot grasp what an amazingly joyous truth this is. Some of you, your heart would skip for joy if your mortgage was forgiven, but you hear this and you yawn. I don't know why this is. But somehow this morning, I'm desperate to stab your hearts wide awake to the enormity of your sin debt, the enormity of what Jesus paid on the cross on your behalf, all your sins, well in excess of 490, (laughs) paid for by Jesus, then and there, canceled nailed to the cross. It's an amazing thing that God has done for you. By saying our record of debt was nailed to the cross, this verse out of Colossians is saying that Jesus, like the king in the story, paid your 2,000 talents. He took it on the chin. He absorbed the loss himself. It's a sum we could never even begin to pay. And he did so because, just like the king in the story, he was moved by compassion because your situation is hopeless. It's pitiable. By paying your sin debt, Jesus mercifully delivered you from slavery to sin and death. This is the great gospel truth. This is what we're going to celebrate when we come to the communion table at the end of our time here this morning. The simple truth that Jesus paid it all. Now, I think that by degrees, I know you, fellow Christian here at State Road. I'm getting to know you guys, of course, more and more as time goes on. And I believe, uh, just as your friend, that you guys are living sincerely. You're trying, many of you, your level best to be followers of Jesus. And we're wildly imperfect. We get it wrong. But when we come to this table, even though we're really trying to, as sincere imitators of Jesus, we don't have any illusions about our own goodness, do we? I think many of you are wonderful people. But none of us are capable of paying the sin debt that we owed. And this table before us, where we celebrate the price that was paid... We are not celebrating our goodness in this moment. We are celebrating our neediness that was met perfectly in Jesus when we were penniless, hopeless. We could not even begin to address the debt because it was staggering, insurmountable. But Jesus paid it all. But then this same servant went out from the presence of the king and he encountered another servant who owed him a hundred denarii. 
And it says that he starts to choke the man and and demand immediate payment. The fellow servant pleaded with him using the exact same language that the first servant had used before the king. Have patience with me and I'll pay you. But the first servant did not forgive the man as he had been forgiven, but he has him thrown in jail. And when word reaches the king, he is furious. He calls the unforgiving servant before him and says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? (coughs) Excuse me. Now, it's important that we understand that a hundred denarii is not a small sum of money either. I was one time, I think I've told some of you this story, I was with a group of teenagers in California, and we were working our way through this story, and one of the girls in my group said, yeah, but what was done to me was no hundred denarii. And her point was, she thought that the story was saying that this was a small, trivial amount of money, as though he was old owed some nickels or something like that. And she was like, no, what happened to me, that's no hundred denarii. But it's important to realize that a denarii was equal, let's see if I can find it here, it's uh, it's equal to, I think, a day's wages. So we're talking about a hundred days wages in that culture at that time. Now, that's a significant amount of money. Uh, If you took your salary and divided it in third, that was essentially what was owed uh, to this man. So Jesus is not saying that this debt was insignificant or trivial, but he is saying very clearly that it pales in comparison to the first debt that was forgiven, the 10,000 talents. Now in the parable, the unforgiving servant had foolishly appealed to the king that if given time, he could somehow repay his enormous debt. And this reveals two things about this particular man. One, he did not fully grasp the enormity of his debt. He pridefully imagined that it was within his ability and resources to pay the king what was owed. Now, how many have taken the same approach toward their sin debt? They become aware of the righteous demands of God's law, and they say to themselves foolishly, well, I better start cleaning myself up. I'll weed out bad habits. I'll volunteer somewhere. As though the gospel is about behavior modification, primarily. The perverse thing is that they are imagining that they can shoulder the burden of their own salvation, but they do not need to become a better version of themselves. They need a savior. They need Jesus. Such a person does not understand the enormity of their debt. Uh, We saw a very similar phenomenon a couple weeks ago when we were studying the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember the expert in the law said to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in that question was the presupposition that eternal life is achievable through human doing. And in his answer, he basically, Jesus says back to him, what's your understanding of it? He comes back with the answer, basically, you have to keep all of God's law. (laughs) And Jesus said, yeah, that's right. Go ahead and do that and you'll live. It's a ridiculous answer. It's a ridiculous exchange. You can't do that. And the analogy I used was, what if this man had come to Jesus and said, the Statue of Liberty has fallen over on its side. What must I do to set it back upright? And Jesus had said, Google it. 
And he says, okay, it says here, it weighs 450,000 pounds. So I guess what I need to do is lift 450,000 pounds. And Jesus had said, yeah, that's right. That's what needs to happen to set the Statue of Liberty back up. That's essentially what's going on here. This guy says, give me time and I'll pay it. Let me drink a Red Bull and I'll lift the Statue of Liberty. This is absurd on its face. He does not grasp the enormity of the problem. So that's the first thing to see about this man. He doesn't yet get it. It's far beyond his ability to pay. And he mistakenly believes that given more time and more effort, he can get there. But really, if given more years to pay down the debt, all he would achieve is multiplying his sins more and more. He doesn't need time. He needs a savior. He doesn't need a better version of himself. He needs one who is perfect. You see, the problem with most people in our culture today, really and truly, it's not their badness. It's their goodness that isn't good enough. They think of themselves as existing on a scale, a spectrum, and they console their hearts by saying, I'm not as bad as that one. And so in the final judgment, God will say to me, you are on balance better than some, you can come into heaven. And maybe I'm the first person to ever tell you this, but that is not what God says in his word. Do you know what the standard is to get into heaven? I, I was going to say I don't mean to discourage you, but I absolutely 100% do. I want you to feel hopeless upon hearing this. God says in his word that the only way you're going to get into heaven is to be absolutely 100% perfect. Not just today, and not just in the days to come, but in all those days that came before. You have to be perfect, as God is perfect. That's what Matthew 5.48 says about getting into heaven. You have to be perfect. Not only that, but let me discourage you even more. The Bible says you were born in sin. You have to be born to two parents who were perfect. And their parents had to be perfect before them. All the way back to guess who? The very first bad boy, Adam. Guys, you are buried under an absolute mountain of sin. You are hopelessly stuck, cut off, separated, without resources, without a hope, until... Jesus showed up, and he made a way out. The second thing that's revealed about this man is that he is apparently motivated solely by a fear of punishment that is not accompanied by any remorse or a contrite heart for what he had done. Unfortunately, even believers will continue to sin after coming to Christ. But because we have been transformed into a new creation through Christ, our lives are now increasingly marked by a love for righteousness and an uncomfortable conviction and remorse for sin in our lives. By refusing to forgive his fellow servant, even though he made the same appeal to the king himself, 
the unforgiving servant reveals that his nature remains unchanged. He's full of regret for his debt, but he hasn't really changed in his heart. And this is an important thing to see because at first blush, this parable seems to undermine and contradict what Jesus is saying about forgiving 490 times or not keeping a record of wrongs would be more accurate. Because this guy asked to have his debt forgiven once, he goes out, he doesn't forgive this, he comes back, and the debt is not forgiven time number two. So what do we do with that? When we become aware of sin in our lives, we should respond with repentance. And when we see sin in the life of another, we should respond with forgiveness. But what I want you to see is that this man was neither repentant or forgiven, forgiving. We need to see the link here between forgiveness and repentance. Jesus stands ready to forgive all human beings for their sins. It's on offer, but he is a respecter of decisions. He is not going to force forgiveness upon you. It's on offer, a pardon from the king. You can pick it up or walk away from it. It's yours to decide about. You're a free moral agent. But, it does re- but somebody who picks up the gift of forgiveness, truly, in a saving way, the true mark of that is repentance, a transformation, a changed nature. We need to see this link. The main point of this parable And I really believe this is true. Here's that main point for this parable. This unforgiven servant did not become like his master. And so he's revealed to be an unrepentant person who never truly accepted. The kingdom is like this. Forgiven people forgive. He expresses very clearly regret over his debt, but did not become like his master. The king says this, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now, we talk all the time here at State Road about being a disciple of Jesus. What is a disciple? That's one of those very Christian-y sort of words. A disciple is a sincere, from-the-heart imitator of Jesus. And what's revealed in this parable is this guy did not become a follower of He did not share in the nature of the king who forgave him. He walked away from the king blessed but independent of him, not looking a thing like him. But we need to see here this link between the two. Repentance is a twin turning. It's a turning away from our sinfulness and a turning toward Jesus. It's a putting off of the old self and a putting on of the new. It's throwing away one thing that's bad, but it is also a picking up of another. When Jesus told Peter no, not seven times, but 70 times seven, he's saying to Peter, become like me. Turn away from that whole idea and embrace who I am in relationship to sinners. Guys, brothers, sisters, friends, we're all becoming what we worship. Let me ask you something. 
Maybe somebody here this morning struggles to forgive somebody who's wronged you. Maybe you're struggling to forgive somebody else. And you don't need to answer out loud, but just in the honesty of your heart, in the privacy of that place, don't you also struggle to believe that you're forgiven by God? I'm willing to bet if somebody struggles to forgive another person, they also struggle to believe that they've been forgiven by God. We are becoming what we worship. And one of the points of this parable is to help us see Jesus more clearly. Guys, that sin debt was 100% paid. It's done. It's no longer on you. Jesus took it 100%. All 10,000 heavy talents of it. Paid, done for. Canceled. And that's the truth. That's what God says, and he does not lie. But now we go out from this place having, with a skip in our step. That weight is off of us. And in your mind, you encounter the name or the face of that person who owes you a hundred denarii. What do you do with that? Are we becoming like Jesus, or have we not yet truly grasped? Are we still keeping records? Are we still keeping count? There is a link in the Bible between forgiveness and repentance. In Luke 17, 4, Jesus instructs, And if he sins against you seven times in one day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So the forgiveness that leads to salvation is marked not by mere regret, but by repentance, a turning, an embrace of something better, something more excellent, following Jesus in sincerity. If God's mercy is without limit, and that is certainly what Jesus was trying to teach Peter, then we must conclude that this unforgiving servant, though he had been extended a pardon, never truly repented of his crimes. He was glad to be pardoned, but in his heart he remained unchanged. He's back out on the streets doing the same crimes that got him in there to begin with. I'm reminded of our study of the second beatitude where it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, on that morning when we studied that, we saw that what was meant by mourning was mourning over our sinfulness. Blessed are those who come to the place of being mournful about the sin in their life because they're going to be comforted in the gospel. You see, before we can embrace the good news, we first have to come to grips with the bad news that we're sinners that we owe 10,000 talents of sin debt. And nobody can really be comforted in the gospel who does not first mourn over their sin. And this man is a picture of somebody who did not mourn his debt in the way that, uh, in the way that would bring him to a place of repentance. Now, I think there are many today who believe that they've been pardoned, but they feel no particular conviction over sin in their lives. And their lives show very little evidence of having been transformed by the Holy Spirit into people who love righteousness and hate sin. And this is surely a parable that would confront us if we are such a person. 
A disciple of Jesus is, again, a sincere from the heart imitator of Jesus' example. Jesus came that we might know forgiveness, and he's made visible in these days and in the midst of our relationships when we respond to sin in our own lives with repentance and sin in the lives of others with grace and mercy and forgiveness. And Jesus concludes his story by telling Peter and also us that forgiven people also forgive. Tell me, how can we credibly preach to the world that their sins can be forgiven in Jesus while withholding forgiveness from people in our own lives who have wronged us? Essentially, we're guilty of saying, do what we say, not what we do. (laughs) An unholy church has nothing to say to an unholy culture. A hard-hearted, grudge-holding church cannot preach forgiveness in the gospel. We are all becoming what we worship. And this parable brings into sharp focus the incredible, expansive grace of our Lord Jesus, whom we are following. Guys, I'm going to be very quick here in the end. Uh, we need to, I want to come to the communion table Uh, But I think some people, and I I only want to linger on this idea for just a minute in closing, because so many people have sat down and confessed to me that they struggle to know if they have ever forgiven someone. Uh, They have someone in their past who has wronged them horribly, or someone they love, and they know the biblical command to forgive. They even know that Jesus says that unless we forgive, we will remain unforgiven. And this scares them because they do an inventory of their heart and they go, man, I'm not sure I've gotten there yet. And they're scared. So some of these terms, I do think we need to, at least this one term, forgiveness, I want to spend some time trying to take a stab at defining it. What is it? How can you know if you've gotten there? Thomas Watson, in his book, Body of Divinity, It's on page 581 if you want to find it sometime. He offers the following seven-part definition of forgiveness, which I've shared with lots of people I find very helpful. The first thing he points to is that when you have forgiven somebody, you resist thoughts of revenge. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I think that when we want to revenge a wrong, we are seizing the place of God. And part of forgiveness is not so much letting the matter drop as it is handing it over to a God who will judge justly. You're resisting thoughts of revenge. It's a pretty low bar, but let's start there. (laughs) That's helpful. Number two that Watson points out, he draws from Scripture, he quotes 1 Thessalonians 5.15 and says that, see that no one repays another with evil for evil. So don't seek to do them harm. Resist thoughts of revenge, don't seek to do them harm. And these get progressively harder, by the way. (laughs) Number three says, "Wish wish well to them. Luke 6, 28, bless those who curse you. Wish good things for them. Proverbs 24, 17 says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. 
So we should grieve at the trouble that befalls somebody. I think we can know that we're on the road towards forgiving them when we grieve over the trouble that befalls them. Number five is pray for them. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. So resist thoughts of revenge, don't seek them harm, wish well to them, grieve over the trouble that befalls them, pray for them. Number six, seek reconciliation with them. Romans 12 says, If at all possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Boy, we could spend a lot of Sundays on just that verse. And number seven, be always willing to help them if they need help. Exodus 23, 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. So that's forgiveness. I think that's a good picture of forgiveness in our mind. When you feel that someone has wronged you or someone you care about, forgiveness means resisting revenge, not returning evil for evil, wishing them well, rooting for them to be better. Not celebrating them as they are necessarily, but rooting for them to be better. Grieve at the trouble that befalls them. Pray for their welfare. Seek to be reconciled as far as it depends on you. And be stand ready to come to their help if they need it. All of these things point us to a forgiving heart. And it's the heart that's all important to Jesus who said in in, in, our, in, the, in the Bible, unless you forgive your brother from your heart, Matthew 18.35. Uh, one question that's always raised, thank you for your patience here in my lasting points that go on for a half an hour, okay? <laughs> We're almost done. Somebody will always say to me, but yeah, well, how do I forgive someone who's actively wronging me? You know, even if I come to the place where, like, I feel in my heart I'm, I'm, a, I'm on the road towards forgiving them, they just keep doing it. Can I forgive? You said that forgiveness had to do with repentance. They're not repentant at all. They, can I forgive somebody who keeps doing it and doesn't even care? What does that mean to forgive someone who doesn't appear to be repentant? I say look at Jesus' example. In 1 Peter 2, we're told, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Again, I think it's so important. You're not called by your God to let the matter drop so much as to transfer it into his hands. Trust him with it. He is the God who says that vengeance is his. He is a a God who will one day judge all things. You don't need to carry that. I want us to remember David's example. It's been a long time since we taught through the life of David, but David was sinned against repeatedly, continuously by Saul. Saul tried to stab him with a spear, tried to have him killed. He's out trying to hunt him down and kill him all the time. Do you remember that scene where Saul goes into the cave to go to the bathroom? It's a fun chapter, 1 Samuel 24. <laughs> David sneaks up behind him as he's sitting on the throne, as it were, and he cuts off a corner of his robe. Saul goes out from using the bathroom 
gets up back up on his donkey or whatever they rode on. David comes out to the mouth of the cave and holds up the corner of his robe as proof that he could have killed him, but he didn't. And then he says this to this man who is actively trying to kill him. He says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. I think this is a picture of what it looks like to put forgiveness on offer by handing it over to God. David says, you were under my my knife. I could have taken revenge. I could have done you harm. And Saul, I think if you continue on this path, God should do something about it. But my hand isn't going to be the one to do it. Do you see what David is saying? David is saying forgiveness, reconciliation, it's on offer. If you read the rest of that exchange, he calls Saul his father. (laughs) He expresses fondness for him. But he keeps coming back to the truth that God is going to judge them. And in everything here, David is saying, I'm not letting this matter drop. You've been wrong to me, Saul. But you need to know this has been handed over to the judge. Please change direction. Even when a person does not repent, we're commanded in Luke 6, 27, to love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us and to do good to those who hate us. Certainly a willingness to forgive is still required, but the forgiveness of an unrepentant person doesn't look the same as forgiving a repentant one. There's no apology, no confession of wrongdoing, no turning from sin. The lack of remorse and change on their side makes it so that the fullness of what you're willing to offer them is rejected. But what's important is that it is on offer. And in that, we represent Jesus to this fallen world. If you're here with us this morning and you have not put your trust in Jesus for salvation, you need to know that that forgiveness, that grace, that mercy is fully on offer to you this morning. It's yours. There is no cost. You can pick it up and embrace it personally. That enormity of your sin debt can be paid this morning if you would put your trust in Jesus for salvation. But you are a free moral agent. What's on offer, you can reject. And I hope we have the same posture towards people who are actively wronging us in our lives today. We should be very clear that our friendship, our help, Forgiveness, reconciliation, all that is on offer. And we should desire it, hope for it. And in that way, we make Jesus visible as a church. And certainly, if somebody stands ready to repent and is remorseful over sin, we should not, in a hard-hearted, grudge-holding kind of way, withhold from them what has been so freely given to us in Jesus. As his church, we mar the image of our Lord when we behave in such ways. We dishonor him and misrepresent him before a world that needs to see Jesus, a living reminder of Jesus in the church. And that's the important thing in this parable. Are we becoming like our king? Are we becoming like the God who saved us? Or do we go out from here and look nothing like him? That's the thing that God calls wicked. 
And that's the thing that is so chilling about this man being thrown back into the prison that he was first delivered from. David also said to Saul, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. Like the hundred denarii that was owed, you may have been wronged and sinned against. You may be actively being wronged and sinned against today. And that's not small or trivial. I'm not trying to say it's insignificant. But this parable gently calls us to consider the excellence of Jesus and to follow him into a more excellent way to make him visible. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this reminder from your word about the enormity of the sin debt that, we, that was canceled through Jesus on the cross. And God, now as we come to the communion table this morning, we have that top of mind, the enormous sin debt that was paid through the spilled blood of Jesus and his broken body on the cross. Father, we know and we confess fully that we have no goodness of our own in which to boast. God, the sum total of our hope before you in this moment is the perfection of Jesus, that we're clothed in his righteousness, and that on the cross, he became sin in our place. But Father, all those who have truly embraced the gospel truth of what I just said, go on to be changed. They become a new creation. You give them the Holy Spirit and a radical new capacity for obedience. Father, grant us repentance. Father, as we think about the enormity of our sin, we are quick to feel regret. But God, would you do the supernatural thing of giving us also repentance? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.